Sita, a wandering ascetic, who was looking for the Buddha. And he was told in which direction to walk. The Buddha had gone down that road and along that way. And so this wandering ascetic who really wanted to meet the Buddha and to practice with him, duly went on his way in search of the Buddha. And it got to nightfall. He hadn't found the Buddha yet. And so he came to a lodging place and spent the night there. And then the next morning went off on his way again in search of the Buddha. But as it happened, the Buddha was staying at that same lodging place that he was staying at. And because he didn't know what the Buddha looked like, he missed the opportunity to actually see him, meet him, receive teachings from him, and probably missed the opportunity to come to full realization, which is what many people did when they met the Buddha and practiced with him. They, many of them became fully liberated. So I've always found this story deeply compassion-evoking. Huh? It's kind of a touching story. Someone is right there in the presence of the Buddha, but because he doesn't know what he looks like, he just bypasses him and gets up the next morning and goes off on his way. And so we can equate this story with the Noble Eightfold Path in as much as it too is right here under our noses, available to us at any moment. But if we don't know how to see it, we don't know how to find it, we don't know how to look for it, we then don't engage it, therefore we don't actually do the practice, and therefore we don't come to know true happiness. So we can see that there are parallels here with this story about the wandering ascetic. So if the question is, how do I live in the world without suffering? Or how do I live in the world with deepening true happiness? The answer is by means of the Eightfold Path. This is the path to freedom. And it's also a way of life. So we want to check for ourselves. Are we living the wrong path of attachment? Or are we living the path these eight steps, the Eightfold Path, that will ultimately take us towards freedom from suffering. So let's just remind ourselves what these eight facets, these eight steps of the Eightfold Path are too. And it's not that we have to go and remember all of them. Just before I even say what they are, as long as we can remember to con connect with now, here and now with mindfulness, all of the other steps will begin to show themselves. So the first part of the Eightfold Path is the wisdom aspect of the practice. It's right view. It's sometimes called right understanding. Then the second step is right intention. Then the next section of the Eightfold Path is called conduct, our conduct in the world, wise conduct. And this is right or wise speech, 
right or wise action, right or wise livelihood. And then the last part of this Eightfold Path is called the concentration aspect of the path. And it's right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. Now you've heard me use the word right or wise. Some people don't like the word right. Others prefer the word wise. So it's your choice. You can use wise or right, whatever speaks to you in a more meaningful way. So we're taught by the Buddha to walk this, it's called the middle path, it's the path of neither extreme, sometimes it's called the right way to live, it's also called the path of non-grasping. And remember, this was his very first teaching to us. This was his revelatory understanding that he had on the night of his enlightenment. It's about living the path of neither extreme not overindulging on the, the, the sense pleasures on the one hand, nor living a, uh, from a life of depriving ourselves in a, a harsh and extreme way on the other. Hence, it's called the middle path. That is not so easy for us to do. Have you ever stood in line in the, the meal line here? They do this sometimes at IMS, and then you get up to the, the, the food counter and there's a little sign that says moderation please that's when there's the most delicious of dishes and we want to take a lot and there's this little sign moderation please moderation is hard for us I certainly know it's hard for me I tend to be one of those all or nothing kind of people so the middle path was you know something quite new who would have thought you know the, the, the middle way it wasn't easy for the Buddha either. It was very, very hard for him to come to this realization. He learned through trial and error. Remember, he went from a life of extreme indulgence. Then he flipped to the other side of extreme deprivation. And he worked in this way for quite a long time, nearly starving himself to death. Uh, just could not figure out how to come to this place of true and lasting happiness, freedom from suffering. But he didn't give up. He didn't give up. He kept looking. He kept looking until he came to this realization. Oh, it's about the middle path, the middle way. The, so that's not overexertion on the one hand and not laxness on the other. Not overindulgence in pleasure on the one hand and, and uh, pain on the other. Not greed on the one hand or aversion on the other. So we're talking about equanimity here too. The non-reactive mind. So after he came to his deep realization related to this middle path, he taught, as we know, I spoke about the Four Noble Truths the other night and just briefly mentioned the last one, the Eightfold Path. And his instruction to us related to this Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth, was that it needs to be developed. So developed is the operative word. We are not perfectly aware, perfectly mindful yet. We're still working with it. So we need to bring that into the equation that it is a path, it is a practice path. It's a way, it's a way of life 
towards true happiness. And so we begin just at a, a pace that really works for us to walk this path. There's no rush, just a moment at a time. So it's a very organic unfolding. Meeting experience for each of us at a pace that works for us. He also said that this path, he described it as the safe and good path to be traveled joyfully. That was his phrase. The safe and good path to be traveled joyfully. So it's a safe path in as much as we are not going to harm ourselves or anybody else if we walk on this path and therefore it's good and we travel it joyfully because it brings us a growing freedom from suffering and happiness with each step of the path as we come to understand it and live it. So this evening, this afternoon, we're going to discuss this Eightfold Path primarily from the pr perspective of how we can live it and develop it in our daily lives, seeing it manifest in our daily lives. The retreat comes to an end tomorrow and how can we continue the practice as we go forth into the future days and into our lives. So we're going to look at some of the very ordinary occasions that could arise for any of us in our daily lives and seeing how the Eightfold Path can manifest, bringing it to the forefront of consciousness for us in these ordinary, mundane kind of experiences. Of course, there's not only mundane, ordinary experiences that we come across. Sometimes, too, there are shocking kind of cataclysmic events that happen in the world. And we want to see, too, how we can meet these, respond to these, incorporating the Eightfold Path, seeing how our practice shows itself in some of the extreme events in life, too. So the challenge for us once we go back out into the world is how to actually do this for ourselves. It's kind of the billion dollar question on our lips as we walk out of the door here. How do we do this? We've been talking about mindfulness of there is a body and we've been talking about the mind, what's happening in the mind, seeing how the mind relates. This is what we've got, the mind and the body. And this is what we take with us when we go back out into the world. So this is what we practice with. Whatever comes up for us related to this body and this mind. So let's take a look and see how these eight facets of this Eightfold Path, how we can see how they actually unfold. How do they flow? Initially, very initially, they work in somewhat of a linear way. And then, after a very short period, they begin to show themselves together, interwoven, intertwined, you could say. Bhikkhu Bodhi, the well-known translator, he's a monastic, an American monastic who's translated many of the, the suttas, he gives a very useful example related to the Eightfold Path in as much as he says they're like eight thinner strands of a thicker piece of rope. 
They're, they're intertwined and they make up a much thicker rope, which is therefore strong and sturdy. And that's how we work with this eightfold path. They arise together to allow for a deepening wisdom uh, to arise within us. And then in addition to that, they also work in a kind of a cyclical and spiraling kind of a way. So we, we, as we refine wisdom, we live with it out in the world. That deepens our connection to the practice, purifies our conduct. So there it allows for us to have a deeper connection with the practice. Therefore, a deeper wisdom arises for us. And so it goes on like this spiraling around and around. At the same time, all eight facets are arising at once in each moment as the spiral moves around and around in our life. <coughs> so from the outset, from the very start, as we begin the practice, we start with the first step of right view. Now there are two phases to right view. And at first... The very first thing that we come to see in right view is that we're here practicing the Dharma because we've understood that the worldly life that we've lived it up until now hasn't actually delivered. Something is just not working for us. So we turn our minds, we turn towards the Dharma to realign ourselves with a different way of living, to live in a, a wiser, more uh, wholesome way of life. And so we turn and connect towards the Dharma. We're aligning ourselves with the Buddha's teachings of living wholesomely, living wisely in the world. So this is the very first moments, you could say, of, of wisdom. That, okay, let me see if I can live life from a different perspective, a wiser perspective. So you could say we have the wisdom to want to wake up. That's the amount of wisdom that we have. We may not be even be waking up yet, but we have that wisdom to know that this is the direction that we want to go in and we want to begin the practice. So we come to a retreat such as this, and then... We hear about the Eightfold Path and the importance of living wisely. And we're then told about the precepts. So that's the very first thing that we did on this retreat. We begin to work with the, with the precepts. And so this is living from a place of wisely not harming others. Why? Because we're told initially, well, that if we take a look, we'll see that actions dependent on their intention, dependent on the motivation behind them, they bring results. So if we act from a place of wholesomeness, the result will be a wholesome one. If we act from a place of unwholesomeness, well, the result is going to be one of suffering. So the more we can begin to understand this relationship of cause and effect, that's what we're understanding here, when you harm another being, it harms ourselves and it harms them. So there is a karmic result. Okay? This is about the law of karma or the law of cause and effect. That's what we're learning about right away when we talk about non-harming. 
So this is the first part of right view. We want to wake up and the first part of waking up is learning that our actions are very important because they have a result. They lead to either happiness or suffering. So then with this understanding in mind, this first little part of wisdom, what very naturally comes forth from that? Very naturally, our aspiration is towards intending to live in that way. Not so. We intend to live in a wholesome way. So that intention is the next facet of the Eightfold Path. With right view, we now intend to live in a wholesome way. So very naturally, that right intention begins to show itself. And so we intend towards non-harming, non which now brings us to the next facet of the conduct, conduct in our, in our life. And conduct includes right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So wisdom, we wisely understand that to not harm another living being will bring wholesome results for us, right? We see that, wholesome results for us. And out of seeing that, we thus intend to put that into practice. And that's the next facet of this Eightfold Path. Bringing into our actions in the world kindness in how we speak, kindness in how we act, kindness in how we conduct ourselves in our livelihood. Not coming from a place of greed, not coming from a place of grasping, not coming from a place of holding on, but coming from a place of generosity of heart, letting go and renunciation, that quality of giving over rather than grasping. And we're also coming from a place of wisely, wisely being present, as opposed to being lost in a world of dreams and not being present. Now we're intending to connect with the present moment. We're intending to be here, to connect wisely with, with each moment. So what really have we been talking about in these moments? We're talking about the defilements of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. This is where our intention leads us, intending towards not coming from a place of greed, not coming from a place of aversion and not coming from a place of delusion in how we live out in the world. So it's from kindness and compassion, generosity and giving and, 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 and renunciation and wisdom. And in order for us to do this, what does it take? How do we actually put these wholesome qualities into action? It takes effort. It takes right effort, bringing us to the next facet of the, the Eightfold Path, the concentration part. It includes right effort. It includes right mindfulness. 
and it includes right concentration. Now let's talk just a little bit about this right concentration. What do we mean? We can simply use the phrase non-distractedness of mind. The undistracted mind. Living in a world, living in the world from a place of being present and not fragmented and distracted in our actions in the world. So this is the fullness of the Eightfold Path here. Wisdom. With wisdom we intend to live rightly in terms of our conduct in the world and in order to do that it takes right effort to be mindful and to be not distracted so that we can act in a way, a, a, a wholesome way, not fragmented. So we can say that our life can be propelled from a place of kindness, generosity and presence of mind. This is how we would live the Eightfold Path, propelled from a place of kindness and compassion, generosity of heart and presence of mind. That's non-delusion. Whilst on retreat though, we can see it's somewhat doable, isn't it? We're here under very specialized conditions. We're not talking, so that helps the mind to be more settled. It's a much more simplified way of living, so we're not really distracted by the outside things that go on. Where we're secluded here. So we've got a fair amount of support that's just in that, that aspect. Then you've got the teachings, the, the instructions. You've got the like-minded group that you're working with, the Sangha here. All of this is a tremendous support for us. So working with the Eightfold Path, which is what we've been working with, this is, it's been fairly doable. We're encouraged to notice when the mind grasps at something. Just notice the arising of the wanting mind. Don't need to grasp at it. You'll see that it's an impermanent arising. Notice when aversion arises. You don't need to act on it and push it away. That you act on the aversion, just notice it's another arising. So we're encouraged to put the instructions into practice and slowly we begin to get an inkling that if we just are sitting with awareness, we'll notice these things arising and we see that they actually change, they are impermanent, so we get little tastes of spaciousness of mind, ease of mind. And as we practice a little more in this kind of a setting, we can possibly come to the deeper aspects of wisdom, that's the second part of wisdom, or the deeper aspect of right view, and that is where we see at a much deeper level the unsatisfactory, transitory, impersonal nature of experience. But out in the world, it's not so easy. It's not so easy because we're caught up in the busyness of our daily lives. We don't have the support that we have here. And it's very seductive. The world out there is really very, very seductive. So we need to be our own guide. We really need to be our own guide. And at first it can be very difficult. So we may fall off the eight-fold path for a chunk of time. And that's how it is for quite a while. 
we forget what we're doing, we may lose it for a period of time, and then, oh yes, maybe we come and do another retreat, or we go to a group, or we speak to someone, and we're reminded, yeah, mindfulness, this is how you work with the practice. And so more and more, as we work with the practice, we don't fall off the path quite so much, more and more we can work more steadily with the path until we are on the path full time, you could say. But at first, as I say, it isn't that easy. A little while ago, I went to a garden center to buy myself a, a rose, a creeper, for my garden. And so I was talking to the, 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 the attendant, the nursery assistant there, garden center assistant, and I said, well, what do you do? How do you plant the rose? And what should I do? And and I said, I've heard that, you know, the roses are very tricky in terms of the rose beetles. They, they, they eat the plant, and I'm not sure, you know. She said, oh, that's not a problem. All you do is, when you see these little little bugs, you catch them, and then you put them between your, t your, two, your two thumbs, like nails like this, and then you just squash them. And so I'm listening to this, and I'm saying, oh, oh, I, I don't think I'll do that, but... But, but thank you. This is what I'm meaning by the lack of support that we get out in the world. Not everybody works with the precepts. And the precepts are front and foremost for us in our, in our practice because they incorporate all of the facets of the Eightfold Path. They're there. So this is what I'm, I'm showing you, reminding you that it, it isn't quite so easy out there. It's for us to be our own guide. And also our guide is mindfulness. That becomes more and more our place of refuge. Mindfulness is our guardian. It guards us against acting in ways like that, especially if we carry those precepts, conducting ourselves from a place of care and, and kindness towards ourselves and others. That will come into our mind immediately when somebody says, oh, that's how you take care of those bugs on your plant. We know, actually no, I don't do that. So ultimately, as we continue with the practice, we really know that mindfulness, right mindfulness, mindfulness is our refuge. That is our place of support, our guide in the practice. So we, more and more we also learn that there's no separation in the practice. It's not like, well, now I'm on retreat and then I go home and I'm off and then that's something else. It's really a different form of practice, but it is all the practice. What we have to remind ourselves about, though, is that there is no quick fix. It is not a matter of, right, I've got it and that's how it is. It's helpful to remember and we can glean from the Buddha that he didn't give up. He kept on working with it. He didn't have a path. He didn't have a teacher or a guide or an instruction. He had no clue. But he kept on working, looking, working, falling down, picking himself up and beginning again, going in this direction and he saw that didn't work, picked himself up and then went in that direction. So this is what we can take from him, incorporating this willingness not to give up, just to keep working with it, a step at a time, a step at a time. 
The Buddha gave a, what I found a very helpful little example related to this, just staying with it, just staying with it. He gave the example of a hen sitting on her eggs. So he says that if a hen sits on her eggs and wishes for them to not hatch, she sits on her eggs and wishes for them to not hatch. No matter how much she might wish for these eggs to not hatch, they are going to hatch. Why? Because the conditions for eggs to hatch are going to be there. She is sitting on her eggs. So then he turns it around and says, similarly, if that hen does not sit on those eggs, and she wishes for those chicks to hatch, those eggs to hatch. No matter how much she wishes for those eggs to hatch, they are not going to hatch. Why? Because the conditions for those eggs to hatch are not there. She's not sitting on those eggs. Then he says, similarly for us, as we work with the Eightfold Path, if we do not work with the Eightfold Path, or you could say work with the Dharma, you could simply say the Dharma, the Dharma is the Eightfold Path. If you do not work with the Dharma, no matter how much you wish for happiness, for growing happiness, no matter how much you wish to not suffer, we are going to suffer. Why? Because the conditions for not suffering are not there. We are not practicing the Dharma. So we're going to be perpetuating our unskillful actions. Thus, we're not going to come to know freedom from suffering or a deepening happiness. And then he says, if we do work with the Dharma, if we do practice the Dharma, if we do practice the Eightfold Path, even if we don't wish freedom from suffering, even if we don't wish for happiness, even if we don't want it. I'm not interested in happiness. I'm just interested in practicing the Dharma. Even if you don't want it, I'm sorry to say you are going to come to know freedom from suffering. It's going to happen. Why? Because the conditions for freedom from suffering are going to be there. We're going to be sitting on our eggs, you could say. We're going to be working with the Eightfold Path. Now, when those chicks hatch, we don't know. The, the, the hen isn't sitting there for waiting for the 21 days. She's just sitting. She's just sitting. They're going to hatch sometime. That's the same with us for our practice. So there is no quick fix. As long as we're willing to sit on those eight eggs, as long as we're willing to work with this Eightfold Path or the Dharma, it is going to bring results. So that is very good news. We don't have to worry about the results happening. They're going to happen. They're going to happen. That is very, very good news for us. It's just that it's not a quick fix. So we can't keep looking at our watch. It's just a matter of staying with it, staying with it, staying with it. Not understanding this, not understanding that it is not a quick fix, is a great hindrance for many people in the practice. Many, many people. Why? 
because we go out into the world and we hear how to work with the practice and we think, yes, I'm motivated, right, I'm going to work with it. So we go home and we work with a particular situation. Nothing happens. Doesn't, there isn't the, a, a particular shift that we think should be happening. So we're looking for some kind of result over here that we think is going to be the result, our agenda, our idea of what the result is. The result is happening, but it's over here, but we're looking in the wrong place. And so, oh, what's happening? We're feeling despondent. And so, oh, this doesn't work and we'll want to give up. So we want to take great care of what I, our idea of the results of practice is. Because it's not about floating around in a state of bliss. It's not that at all. Really, what begins to happen more and more is that we learn to meet all of the same situations. They will still arise. All of the same situations arise. We learn to meet them from a place of non-reactivity and wisdom and compassion rather than the usual, I don't want this to happen, I want it to be this way. That's where the shift happens, in the mind, not with the actual events that are coming about. So when we have a love of the Dharma, then we want to practice it. Especially when we do hear that it does bring freedom, and when we actually see it in our own practice, just incrementally, in little moments, in small, small events. As a child of oh, about 11 or maybe 12 years old or so, I remember go, traveling in my grandfather's car. My mother and I, it was just me and my mother, she didn't have a car. We, didn't, she, she was, we were very poor. And so my grandfather would come and pick us up and take us wherever we needed to go. And so I was often sitting in the back of the car and you know what a child does, peers out of the big back window and just watches the events going by. And, I remember driving down one road and there I would see some men like moving some shrub and bushes and some rocks and stones and clearing some kind of a, a, a space and several months later we were going down the same road and there I'd see them still there out in this space but now there was some kind of a road and some kind of a structure, you know, concrete blocks up in, in the air and then months or maybe even longer, maybe even years later, drive down that same area and my gosh, here was a huge highway. And then I would reflect, gosh, that's incredible. There was nothing there at first. It was just bush and shrub and, and, and rocks. And then they cleared that. And how did they know that actually one day there would be this highway? This, too, is what happens for us in, in the Eightfold Path. We can liken it to the Eightfold Path in as much as we can see that these builders of this road had this view, this, this vision, this uh, direction that they were going in. They were clearing this path with a view to building this highway which was going to support a growing infrastructure for, 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 the, for the city. And so similarly, we can see that this is what it is for us with the Eightfold Path. When we have right view to head in this direction, this is where I'm headed, then we develop a momentum in that direction and 
Before we know it, there is the Eightfold Highway and we've got this momentum. We're on it and it is pulling us along towards a deepening happiness in our lives. That's to say we are developing it. We're putting the Buddha's instructions into practice. We are developing it. This is the practice happening for us. A key factor, of course, with this Eightfold Path is that one, they're all very important, all, the, all of these facets are very important, but the one that comes forth kind of kind of in the forefront, you could say, is, and I spoke about it last night, right effort. Now, there are many other words that I've, I've, I've selected to put under the umbrella, you can say, of right effort, because right effort can be a little bit of a harsh phrase for us sometimes. We could also use the word zeal. We could use the word enthusiasm. We could use the word courage. We could use the word ardor, and we could also use the word tending. When you're tending to the moment, it's got a, a loving quality to it as well. There's effort in it, and it's got a loving quality when you tend to the moment. So this, these are all words that I've put in a kind of an umbrella under a, a right effort. I also use the word passion. When we're passionate about the Dharma, then we engage it. So when we bring right effort into play, it's really just meaning that we're not giving up on the practice. We're not giving up on connecting with our life and seeing how we can use whatever comes to us to wake up. Not some special uh, experiences, but the ones that are there. Whatever those events are, can we use those? So in the same way that when a, a, a young child doesn't do something, they forget to do something, or they, they, they get something wrong, we don't reprimand a young child, do we? We encourage them. We say, come on, let's try again, let's see if we can do it. We kind of encourage them in a loving way. This is how we work with ourselves. We, we put our arm around ourselves, you could say, encouraging ourselves to reconnect, give it a go, see if you can work with this situation. And this is how we do it for ourselves. It's not about judging ourselves if we're, you know, we've haven't engaged the moment or we've completely forgotten about being mindful in a particular situation. It's not about judging ourselves because in the moment that we've woken up, now we can rejoice. Now we're present. Now we can see. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. What's happened? Okay. How can I change the tone of my voice in this moment and see if I can connect with this person? You know, bringing right effort into play in any given moment. So we use the full range of experiences, the full, the full selection. For example, relationships with people. Sometimes for some of us, it can be very hard for us to say no. People ask us to do things and, yes, I'll do it. Yes, yes, I'll do it. I'll do that. This was a situation in my own life where, this is many years ago, where I knew that I would always say, yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. 
And then I decided I'm going to really see if I can next time say, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be able to do this. Lo and behold, I'm asked to do something a little while later and went, yes, I'll do that for you. Oh, and then I got home and wait a minute, I was really working with this. I'm, this is something I'm genuinely working with. What did I do? It took a lot of courage. I called the person up. That was very hard for me to do, to meet that situation, to rise to the occasion and say, you know, I'm sorry, I said I would be able to do this, but actually I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm really working with this aspect of practice in my life and I'm going to have to turn you down here. It was very hard for me, but just having to do this particularly difficult action, talk to this person, for future events I learned to say, hang on, I'll take a look. I don't know yet. So it gave me some breathing space. So this is how, this is bringing right mindfulness, right effort, right intention, intending to respond to the mo moment rightly. Sometimes we get it wrong. Well, then we try again. This is how we work with the practice in our lives. I'm sure there's similar situations, maybe not the same, but similar things that you can see in your own life that will help us to see that we can rise to the occasion, to break these very deep tendencies that we habitually act out on. Because it might be the opposite. Perhaps we're the kind of person that always says no. And then we see that. And then, wait a minute, can I have the courage to say, yes, okay, I'll do that for you. So it works both ways. A different sort of situation, again, many years ago, I was bitten by a dog about 15 years ago now, it took me completely by surprise, a German shepherd bit me on the butt. Uh, it wasn't a really bad bite, but enough for me to get a real fright, and consequently, I was frightened of dogs. And so, for many years, I avoided any, even a little dog, I uh, avoided dogs to the best of my ability, or I'd push somebody else in front of me and I'd hide behind <laughs> them, and you know, they would, you know, take the, the, the little poodle, they would face the poodle. <laughs> that was, it was that, you know, frightening for me. So this went on for quite a few years, and I improved a little bit, I improved a little bit. And several years after that, eight, nine years or so, I noticed that I would do a little bit of running, you know, about 15 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes, and I'd notice that I'd run a certain distance and then turn around and double back and, oh, well, that was my run. But then I noticed that very conveniently where I was doubling back was where two dogs lived. And the real reason I was telling myself I had run enough now was actually there were those two dogs there and I didn't want to face them. And so I thought, well... They're not mean dogs. I know them. They're not ferocious dogs. And I've been, you know, avoiding for quite a long time now. Wisely at first, because we have to support ourselves. We're conditioned by a dog bite. But now, after 10 years or something, now I have to take a look. Could this be apathy? You know, the lack of, of wise effort or not? Yeah, I think it is. I think so. So now I was going to bring in wise courage. Courage, another word for effort. 
No, it, it takes courage. All right, I'm going to see if I can do this. And so I ran and I did. And I could feel the fear. There was fear there. But I, I let that fear be there. That was porous. It had space. It wasn't solid. Just breathed through it and ran. And then saw them and, oh, and just did my run and doubled back. And I survived to tell the tale. It was okay. And it was confidence building and, you know, oh, it's okay. This is what I'm suggesting, that we stretch our limitations a little bit, wisely. We don't want to be foolish about it. We want to wisely stretch it and see, can I meet this difficult situation? So this is bringing the Eightfold Path into play right here. It's not some sort of holy situation that the Eightfold Path comes into play. It's right here in the midst of a, a dog bite. That's where the practice is. How are we? What's the attitude of mind? Are we bringing wise intention to not continue to feed the, the, the apathy the, and the fooling myself? A kind of dishonesty in a way. No, I'm not, I don't need to go there. So this is what we're talking about, really taking a look at what's going on in the mind related to all of these situations. At any moment in our life, at any moment, we can stop and take a look what's happening in the mind now. We've been practicing that here. We can see what, what is it? How am I relating to this situation? Whether we're in a traffic jam, whether we're in the department store, whether we're talking to the neighbor. Is there aversion in the mind? Is there impatience in the mind? Is there a wanting in the mind? Take a look. Notice what's going on. If we notice the aversion or wanting in the mind, let it be there and continue with the conversation or the action without acting on the aversion or the wanting. Uh, I mentioned this a similar situation, I think, last night, but a different one related to seeing the wanting in the mind and watching how transformation very naturally comes about when we see it. Quite a long time ago, uh, I was eating uh, a big sandwich, maybe a chicken and you know lots of stuff on it, and I know it had mayonnaise on it. It's a big sandwich, and I was really hungry, and I was at home on my own. So there was nobody watching me, and so I took a big bite out of this. I was really hungry, a big bite out of the sandwich, and I'm eating, eating, eating. And then I saw the wanting, like the greed in the mind, that the juices were salivate, like running down the chin. I could literally feel this, and you know, like the leaning in. In that moment, in the noticing it, I didn't change anything. Stayed with it, and then just watched what happened. Because then you feel the contractedness. I'm, I'm, I may have given an example similar to this. I could feel the contractedness and the pain of the greed, of the leaning in. And with that, wisdom very naturally comes in when we're bringing right effort, right mindfulness, and non-distractedness of mind to the situation. Wisdom arises. Wisdom says, oh, take your time. You've got all day to eat the sandwich. Relax. There's no need. You know, the greed subsides. The greed subsides. 
and in its place is balance of mind to actually truly taste that sandwich. Let it come to me rather than trying to, you know, climb into it from that place of greed. <laughs> now, watch this. These are, I'm sure, I'll bet you that some of you do this when you eat a hamburger or sandwich or something. Watch that quality arise. And wisdom can arise right in that moment. The eightfold path is in the midst of that bite of that <laughs> sandwich or hamburger. So you can watch the energy in the body too. Watch it. You'll feel how it all builds up and contracts and rushing, rushing out in the world. Notice the rushing and see it. See that it, it's tiring and it takes a lot of energy. And just in seeing it, wisdom will come in and we'll relax and settle back. And we don't need to slow down, but rushing, that quality of rushing need not be included in it. And so we're intending to come from a place of balance in the mind and settled backness in the mind. And this is bringing the Eightfold Path into view. If we think that none of these things are the practice, if we think that, oh, this isn't the practice, the practice is sitting here on the cushion, then we're not going to bother to engage these kind of ordinary worldly events. But that sadly will mean that we're not engaging the Eightfold Path, that we're not using the, the, our life to bring the Dharma to the fore. So any situation, any situation whatsoever. We could also be just have a very spacious life with very little to do in it. So there may be no rushing in our life, but we're sitting with plenty of time on our hands. Is it possible to just sit and be and just look at the four walls? Just look and be? I do that sometimes in my living room. It's not that I think, okay, now I've got time, now I'm going to sit down and meditate. No, we can do that too. That can be a, an event that we importantly do incorporate into our life. But it could just be sitting, like being in this room and just looking, yeah, seeing, being. Being with nothing special, no event, just being. That too is bringing the Eightfold Path into to play. As we practice in this way, we begin to have some success. We really do see that it's possible for us. We see we're less reactive. We see we're less leaning into the moment. We see there are fewer moments of, of aversion there. And we become more confident that it is possible for us. Out of this, there's a growing sense of self-respect for us, for ourselves, in our lives. There's less remorse. Why? Because we haven't been so reactive. We're not acting from a place of aversion towards others because we're responding more kindly in our speech and our actions towards others. There's more generosity of heart and so on that I mentioned earlier. Those dark, old, habitual tendencies of mind are not there as much as they used to be. Maybe they're still there, but less than they used to be. And so sometimes we can hardly recognize this new person. We don't live from those dark, painful states of mind quite so much. And wow, the practice actually does work. So we begin to have a bit of a spring in our step. 
there is a little bit more joyfulness in our life because we can see that we're not dragged around by the nose of the defilements, you can say. We're not thrown off center in life quite so much, so there is more balance of mind. There is more equanimity. That's to say there's more right effort, right mindfulness, right non-distractedness of mind brings about the sense of ease, balance and centeredness in our lives. And so we begin to take ourselves a little bit more lightly. We're not trying to get rid of our foibles and get rid of our idiosyncrasies. They're there and we see them, but we take them more lightly. We can laugh at ourselves a little bit, be a little bit more playful with ourselves. When people say things about us, we don't get so hurt, perhaps. We can laugh with them or we just say, oh, is that what you think? Oh, that's interesting. I don't feel that way. But we're not taking what other people think about us on board. And so there's much more spaciousness of heart. Quite a number of years ago, I was at home going for a walk with a colleague of mine. And I was telling her that, oh, I had been exhausted the previous evening. And, uh, you know, I got into bed at around 11 o'clock at night and had a large bag of chips with me. And so I munched away at some of these chips. And then I just put them down at the side of the bed and I went to sleep. And she turned to me and she said, oh, that's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) And I turned to her and I I chuckled and I said, yes, it is kind of disgusting, isn't it? But I wasn't taking it personally. It wasn't a like, oh gosh, what a bad person I've been for doing this. It was just, yeah, yeah, it is a bit disgusting, but that's all. That's that's not something I do on a regular basis, by the way. (laughs) what What I experienced in this moment was the deeper part of right view. That is not taking it personally. That is, it wasn't about me, mine, myself. I am bad or I am anywhere. It was just, oh, is that what you think? Well, that's the way it is. There's the spaciousness of heart when we don't take things personally. There's much more space in the mind. We're not, we haven't got this, you know, the sense of smallness of me and who I am. There's just this interchange this flow of conversation and events without it being a separation of you saying this about me and now I'm hurt that you have said this to me. That isn't in the equation because there's this real connecting with not taking it personally, which is the deeper aspect of right view showing itself. So there's a huge relief that we begin to feel. We're not struggling with ourselves so much. We're not struggling with others. And the path really does become vital and playful and joyous for us. Then too, in those dramatic cataclysmic events that can happen in the world from time to time, we feel those two from a place of deep resonance and also equanimity when the Eightfold Path has been strengthened within us. For example, at the the event of 9-11, 
you know that that was a cataclysmic event for for us here the the destruction of the the twin towers i remember that and i'm sure we all do i remember that event as though it happened yesterday on that day i'd had a plan to go for a swim at the local lake and so i thought well all right i'll, I'll keep that that date i had with this friend of mine she had asked if, if we could go and i remember we were driving in a car towards this lake and I saw an electrician. He was up the, the, at the top of his ladder working on the, the, the electricity pole. And the thought arose for me as I saw this. Gosh, the moments in life never stop, no matter what. These cataclysmic things, the tidal waves, the earthquakes the war, whatever happens in life, these things happen. And life still goes on. We can't say, life, stop. This is too much. It, there's another moment. It continues. It just continues to unfold. This understanding comes from a place of deep equanimity related to the events in life. We see that we're not in control of what happens in life. In the round of samsara, as I mentioned a few days ago, the round of birth and death, anything can unfold. Things arise and cease in ways that we are not in control of. What we can do through a deepening wisdom, through working with the Eightfold Path, is meet them with equanimity meet them from a place of looking on at life with a growing understanding that this is how life is. Within that equanimity is a deeply resonant heart of compassion. It understands how life is. That all of us on the planet, all of us in the world, really want to be happy. Yet we act in ways that are so hurtful and painful to each other. And so sometimes we cannot fathom why things like this happen in the world and why they are done. Yet we can hold it from this place of equanimity. So we learn through working with the Eightfold Path to hold all of life. The pains and the sorrows that come to us in life and the beauty and the joy that comes to us in life, we learn to hold it all with a very wide heart, an infinitely wide heart, that comes from this deep understanding of the truth of the way life is. So we can see that it's a path with a tremendous amount of heart. It is not a, a kind of a clinical practice at all. It's very alive and heartfelt. So the more we practice with the Dharma, the Eightfold Path in our lives, our wisdom strengthens and deepens, and more and more we see on a, on a very infinitesimal level, you could say, the transitoriness of life that life is hurtling by at such a pace. 
it's moving by so quickly and we get to feel this at a, a very sensitized level that you can say and we begin to see more clearly that a life immersed in the, the kind of the sense pleasures you could say the worldly activities we see more and more that actually we at a deeper level we know that they are not satisfying to us we're here as human beings practicing them and living them and participating in all of the the fun things in life but ultimately we know that that is not where true happiness lies and so at times in our life we get this intuitive sense that we need to bring ourselves to a place like this once more we know we need to steep ourselves in seclusion and so once again we bring ourselves to a place like this that is silent it is renunciate somewhat in lifestyle we're here together with like-minded people and having practiced out in the world we now have a much more steady mind because we're living with less remorse because we've been living from wholesomeness out in the world so we come again to a place of seclusion like this and the mind becomes still and quiet much more quickly than it did in the past and out of that we get to see a deeper layer of wisdom a much deeper layer of the true nature of the way things are they impermanent unsatisfactory impersonal nature and once again we go back out into the world and we live from this place of deeper understanding once more refining the precepts and our connection with life in a much deeper way and so it goes on this is the cyclical kind of uh, path that I was talking about that we take it goes round and around ever refining our practice both here on retreat and then out in the world so we include both the formal practice here and our practice out in the world connecting with family and people out in the world and so just to remind us of the way the Buddha described this eightfold path so we can travel it knowing that it's a safe path and it's a good path and can we all travel it joyfully knowing that it takes us to true and lasting happiness so let's sit quietly together for a moment or two <coughs> 